You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. Hello, and welcome to a special three-part edition of the Wavel Room podcast series. On the 9th of March, we interviewed Admiral Tony Radikin, First Sea Lord, Chief of the Naval Staff, and the professional head of the Royal Navy. We've subsequently edited the recorded podcast into three distinct parts. In this first part, we talk to Admiral Radikin about his tenure thus far as First Sea Lord, and get some of his ideas, thoughts and opinions on leadership. In part two, we will have the opportunity to hear his vision for the future of the Royal Navy via the Naval Transformation Programme. And in part three, Admiral Radikin answers your questions as submitted to him via Twitter. So without further ado, sir, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Nick. And it's a delight to be here. This is my first podcast. Wonderful. So, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we'd like to set the trend, sir. And a nice easy one to start with, just to ease you into the, to the experience. Here you are approaching a year into the job. Are you still enjoying it? Is this what you hoped or expected being first sea lord would be? Yes, I'm loving it. And I think it's really interesting. Are you still enjoying it? I'm enjoying it. I always thought I would enjoy it. And if anything, I'm enjoying it even more than I thought I would. And that is partly because this is a huge privilege and it's a great role to have. But also that's a reflection, I think, of where the Navy is. So I think the Navy's in a good spot. It's got amazing people doing amazing things. And I'm proud to be heading up the service. I'm proud to be a part of UK defence. And it is genuinely good fun. At times it's tiring, but I think all the chiefs are really well supported. And I mean that by our politicians and the head office and the whole machinery of defence and the security architecture. And then you come down into your own service where again, you're incredibly well supported and you have this responsibility to lead your service, but you also have the joy of going around and seeing your service and what it's doing. And occasionally there are also frustrations with what you're trying to do and are you doing that as well as you could? But it feels an exciting time to be at the top of the Navy. We're growing for the first time for 70 years, we're busy on operations, we're successful in operations, so that makes it easier to enjoy it, and there will be some rough times inevitably, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good feeling. Brilliant. You're now in the, the biggest uh, of naval seats. Is this something you've always aspired to, or did you hit a point in your career and just have an epiphany and realise I've got reach, or, or, or was this a meticulously crafted thing from the hallowed halls of uh, Dartmouth? Uh, you can I, be honest. No, no, I can. <laughs> I, I will be brutally honest. So, so, and I think this is probably the same for most people. So this, this was just something that happened. And it's interesting. I was at Dartmouth last week, and I was there for the new entry mess dinner. So these are people that have been in the service for six weeks. And I gave a, a short speech and I emphasize that um, they're on a journey, and it's a magnificent journey for all of us, I think, to serve our country. It's fantastic 
to be in our Navy. And the thing that resonates when I do this look back with my own career is that it's been deeply enjoyable. And I've enjoyed every job that I've had. And I don't think I ever had an expectation that I would get to this level. You might do in your sort of last couple of jobs and you sort of start to get a bit more attuned to where you are and what the chances are. So my advice to people at the junior level would be to focus on enjoying the moment and enjoying their service and looking after the people that they have the privilege to lead and aiming to be very good at what they do. And then the career aspect, I think, then flows from that. I think if you, if you do it the other way around, I would be really wary of firstly being less fulfilled and secondly, the risk that you're less successful. Because I think if ego starts to dominate or a selfishness or even worse, a manipulation because I want to get from A to B to C to D, then actually that can be uncomfortable for the people that you lead and it's detected by the people that you're serving. And it's very, very easy to say that at the top of an organization and to try to say to people, relax. It's more about self-confidence, self-awareness, professionalism, looking after the people that you lead. And personally, I would also stress having the confidence to try to have a deep enjoyment about what we do. I happen to do law at university. I've got a lot of friends that are lawyers. I respect them. Um, and lots of them are probably better paid than we are in the service. But when you get to my age and you, you sort of look at what you've done and, and what they might have done, I think it's this, it's this sense of fulfillment and it's also this sense of enjoyment. And I think what we have in all of the UK Armed Forces still is this expectation that people enjoy what they're doing. And we even expect people to have a good crack um, as part of their professional lives. And I think that's something very, very special and is something to focus on, particularly at the junior stage, and less about climbing up some sort of greasy ladder. So there's a lot of interesting points that, that come out of that discussion, sir. And, and you mentioned leadership and, and self-awareness and all those good core tenets that certainly at my level you get taught at JOLC and uh, ICSC and, and, and all the various leadership courses that we go on. And I think it's interesting that in the Royal Navy, everyone from Killick and above is meant to be a leader. We're told how to be a leader, how to develop our leadership. There's a, a, there's a difference between leadership and command. We're all leaders, but very few of us are lucky enough to, to have a command appointment, either in our own professional trade or as you have, you've held a command in every rank from uh, lieutenant up. So uh, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on what you think the difference is. What's, what's the X factor that makes a commander rather than a leader? So I don't know if there's an enormous difference. Um, so I think, again, there are some fantastic books. There are some amazing courses. There are people that have studied 
the theory of leadership in a much more profound way than than I could offer. I see leadership probably in quite a traditional sense of looking after the people that you lead whilst at the same time getting the things done that you need to get done. And I think in those sort of in that sort of folksy way of describing it, there is an awful lot that goes with that to be successful. The command piece to me is just another element of responsibility where it seems more acute that you are responsible for that organization and those people. And that can exist at shore and on sea. And I think the real distinction I would make would be between command and operational command and when you really are putting people's lives on the line. And that's lives on the line can exist in peacetime and wartime but that to me is the is the is the added nuance and i think the successful commanders have been comfortable with that level of responsibility it, it's more characterful than it is competence mm-hmm. i have seen some superb people who have moved up the system and then being given command and actually there's just been a discomfort a discomfort that the buck stops with them and that they have this added responsibility and the people that i see who are very good in command have a confidence this self-awareness selflessness i think that they really uh, try to lead all the people in their organization whilst fulfilling their responsibility about getting the task done that they have to get done but it looks to me that it's more characterful it's more about the the sheer comfort and ease that they have in bearing that responsibility and I, as i say i think that becomes more acute when you're in command and whether or not you really have that comfort and that character becomes even more acute when it's operational command. So those key tenets then, would you classify them as Radican model of leadership? You know, everyone's looking for idealized leaders these days, whether it's a CEO of a of a tech company or military leaders. Do you see that as a core belief that, that makes you the leader the confidence, the self-awareness, and the, the comfort with responsibility that doesn't necessarily or, or can't necessarily be taught at, at academies. It's just something that's within you. So hopefully I've got the self-awareness <laughs> to not describe a radical model of leadership. <laughs> and I think, and neither to, to comment on my own sort of success or lack of success i think that's for others to comment on i want to work for somebody who said that the, the danger with calling yourself a world-class organization is that actually it's, it's for others to judge not for you to say so i think there's a there's, there's a piece there the only bit that i would i would offer on that is 
I think I've definitely grown as an individual as I've sort of as I've been in the service, and that's both you know both as a human being, and you you know you you, you grow. I happen to have got married and have children, and and that you do all that, but also professionally you grow. And I think we are an amazing organisation that gives people the opportunities to grow as an individual, both personally and professionally. I've been fortunate with the experiences that I've been given and with some of the formal education that I've been given to allow me to to grow and, and carry on that journey. As a leader, I think I have a couple of traits. So I think I'm inquisitive and I... I'm still keen to learn. I'm curious about the world. I hopefully have the confidence to ask the why question, which becomes even more important the more senior you get, because you're being assaulted by more and more information. And there's an expectation somehow that you know more than you actually know. So having the confidence and the courage to just ask the why when you definitely don't understand or just the why to see why is it that way and what is the explanation that goes with it. I, I think being inquisitive feels to me that it's quite a strong trait. And then I'm optimistic as well. That feels to me that that's a fundamental trait of leadership. It feels to me that it's hard to be the pessimistic leader. So you can be the sober one that always describes the risks and actually, you know, we have to be careful here, et cetera, et cetera. I'm less sure about that. In some of the most difficult situations, there is an obligation on the leader to paint a picture that is the most hopeful and that actually everything is going to be all right. Or even if it's not going to be all right, that this is the right thing to do and this is a noble and selfless thing to do, and we're going to do it. So the optimism, to me, that feels that that's a very strong trait. There's lots of words we can use to try and describe it, but to me, it feels personally, I tend to be inquisitive and optimistic. You have, as you say, the self-awareness not to use your own uh, leadership as an exemplar. Do you have anyone or anything that influenced your leadership style? Do you have any particular role models or, or read any particular books on the subject or has it primarily been based on your growth from lieutenant's command through to, to two and a half commander and all the, the shore commands and senior appointments? I've worked for some fantastic people and that's definitely different colours of cloth, that's men and women, that's civil servants and military and I think I personally gained from that experience. I was a baby navigator and I had a commanding officer, Commander Chris Peach, who was the captain of a frigate. And I remember vividly in your joining interview when uh, he sat me down and he said, right, I'm going to set the bar high. And that was the last thing that I wanted to hear, having just joined his ship, having just passed my frigate navigator's course. And he talked about... Tony, the, I'm going to assume that you're quite a good navigator. You've passed the course. You can navigate my ship. I'm going to set the bar much higher than that. And he said, I want you to come and see me whenever you're not enjoying this. 
because our my expectation in the way that I run this ship is that we look after each other and that it's an enjoyable experience. And I, I, I'm not saying I've, I've stayed faithful to that, but I've always remembered it and tried to, tried to implement that. I had lots of other uh, bosses um, or peers or even people that work for you where you, you, you can learn and understand. Uh, and I think trying to assimilate is important. There's lots of theories of leadership. I, I dip into them and try to, to understand that quite often they're fleeting for that moment, if I'm, if I'm honest. I'm wary of the romantic um, classical leader, if only I was like X. And the reason I'm wary of them, by the way, is I think that quite often they're, they're, they're intimidating. These are people that you describe that it's almost impossible uh, to ever consider emulating. But sometimes it's worth understanding that there are some amazing characters that have done phenomenal things and that the human spirit can lead people in a way that might at first appear to be inconceivable. And the, 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 if, if I was to select a romantic leader, somebody I wish I might aspire to, but I haven't got a hope of being able to, it would be Shackleton. So whenever I read the story, of Shackleton being marooned in the South Atlantic, the least hospitable ocean going. And he gets in an open boat with his ship's company left there and he takes just a small group of them. And the piece that always resonates with me is that the, the ship's company knew that he was going to go and get help and come back for, for them. And they never lost faith. And he then goes on this amazing journey to head north, gets to South Georgia, which even in navigational terms uh, with what he had was quite impressive. South Georgia is still not fully surveyed. He makes his way around South Georgia, occasionally getting lost in deep crevasses, going down the wrong valleys, then has to come back up. Then, and then he comes across a whaling station, and then he sorts out to get help and he returns to rescue his ship's company. And you're doing that in the South Atlantic, in South Georgia, and in the most dire of situations. And yet, your ship's company had the faith and trust that their commanding officer was going to rescue them. That, to me, is a phenomenal story, um, and is something to try and understand and and say that we we can do amazing things as human beings and this concludes part one of our special three-part podcast series with the first sea lord admiral tony radikin listen to part two of the interview next where we hear about his plans for naval transformation Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.